Hello, I'm Ed Needham, editor of the fabulous literary magazine Strong Words, and this is my podcast, The Five Rules of Writing. In each episode, I speak to a most excellent writer in a particular genre about how they do it. And if you'd like to know more about Strong Words, and specifically how to subscribe, go to www.strong-words.co.uk and you'll be whisked straight to the website. Hello and welcome to The Five Rules of Writing, brought to you by Strong Words magazine. This is a podcast where I talk to writers about the five things they know to be true in writing whatever it is that they write for a living. So whether they spend their days writing biographies of great Shakespearean actors or speeches for civil servants, there are some aspects of their work that are absolutely non-negotiable. Now, today my guest is the author of a magnificent work of childhood autobiography called Broken Greek. He arrived in England as a small child, the offspring of Greek Cypriot parents who fully expected to be returning permanently to their Mediterranean paradise just as soon as their Birmingham fish and chip shop provided the anticipated fortune. When that didn't happen, our author found himself with something of a primary school age identity crisis. He was Greek Cypriot indoors, English outdoors, and his initial response to that impasse was a logical one. He stopped speaking entirely for a couple of years, but eventually found another great cultural wellspring to provide him with his own sense of identity, the music of the top 40. I'd like to welcome journalist, broadcaster, and supremely entertaining autobiographer of growing up Greek in the West Midlands, Pete Perfides. Pete, welcome. Hi, Ed. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. And what My a lovely introduction. Thank you. And now, normally when people approach their autobiography, the childhood tends to be the least of it. You know, some people can barely summon a couple of paragraphs when writing their childhood. What made you realise there was an entire book in it for you? That always surprises me, actually. It surprises me when um, people kind of skip the first few years, because I think, that, you know, like 80% of what we are is, I think, sort of pretty much created in the first 10 years of our mm. lives. And I think, you know, in the sphere of psychology, I think that's becoming more and more under in, in uh, of an inarguable point. Uh, they're hugely important those first few years, and I just think that those are, those are just the years in which you're you're being made, and they're really interesting. Um, it's just a really interesting time because. Um, you and one of the reasons why I think it's interesting is because of you know you you know very little, so the the, the conclusions you come to um, are often um, way off beam, but kind of interesting in their own own right, and um, and so. Um, I really wanted to, and for, I remembered a lot. Of, I just seemed to remember a lot about how I felt in the, those first sort of 10, 15 years of, of my life. I remember the confusion of of just trying to figure stuff out because I certainly growing up, I'm 51 and um, sort of having spent the first years of my life in the in the 70s when, you know, everyone's parents were very busy and, you know, dishwashers hadn't been invented and you know my 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 mum didn't even have a sort of a, a washing machine till 1979 or something and, and they worked in a fish and chip shop full time so parents aren't really going to have to explain that much to you so you draw you you draw a lot of false conclusions and you're just to figure out human relationships you're getting things wrong a lot of the time i think it's really interesting the ways in which we get things wrong and you know, trial and you know, you get to adulthood by a by process of trial and error. That I think that's absolutely true of all of us. It has to be. And what isn't interesting about that? I mean, I think it's interesting. My job was to make it as interesting for other people as I found it. Brilliant. Now, one of the things that uh, virtually all writers have in common is that um, I mean, hardly any of them actually enjoy writing. Did you enjoy writing this? Um, I enjoyed it more than I thought I would. I mean, I traditionally I enjoyed writing uh, a, a huge amount, um, but I, there were ways in which I thought I could probably uh, more enjoyable. And one one was to uh, not not show it to anyone to 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 just sort of not put myself under pressure of deadlines. Uh, uh, and so um, 
the downside of that was I felt very guilty. I felt like what I was doing might end up being an enormous waste of time. And so um, I, my preferred environment in which to write, I like to leave the house. I like to be in cafes. I like to have the kind of white noise of okay. human traffic. Like a bit of distraction. Around. Yeah, except I don't find it distract. I think it's kind of the opposite of distraction. It just puts me in a kind of neutral space. It's quite comforting. Uh, I like being around people going about their business. Uh, but the downside of that is I, I'd sort of come home and, you know, my wife, who is a, a sort of a genuinely successful writer, uh, is a, um, you know, is hugely productive. Uh, and um, so I'd come home at the end of each day and uh, and I didn't even know if what I was writing was even a book. And the only the, re the only reason I could, I, I could even allow myself the space to do it was because one of us was earning money and it wasn't me. <laughs> So, you know, it was very nice of her to uh, allow me that time and space and not to make me feel guilty about doing it. Um, it did make it more enjoyable. To answer your question, it did make it more enjoyable because if today had just been a complete write-off, it, it didn't really – I wasn't disappointing any editors. Uh, and so – but, yeah, writing, I mean, you know, by by trade, I'm a, I'm a music journalist. And um, like a lot of people who do what I do – I, I press send when I can't make it any better than it is. But that doesn't necessarily mean I think it's any good. Um, I, I'm, I've just run out of ways in which to not make it totally rubbish. And so, and the, of course, the thing with writing is, you know, you are, it's, it's like, um, you know, you're assembling uh, hopefully a piece that will read smoothly from beginning to end. And people won't be able to see the joints. People won't be able to see the sort of stitch work. But you won't really know that until, to typically, until hopefully a reader or an editor, someone gets in touch with you and says, I really liked that piece. And then you allow yourself to read it back and hopefully read it as that person will have read it. And that's when you get start to get a sense of whether or not it was actually any good as a piece of writing. Sure. And just in terms of, of output, there seems to be, among writers who I've spoken to, an unwritten uh, rule that must be made that uh, correct number of words to write each day is 500. Is, did you uh, obey well, I that? I really term? hope it is 500 because uh, <laughs> that, that sort of slightly... Sometimes it was more, sometimes it was less. But um, I think about... Um, I would aim for, a, you know, like anything between 800 and 1500 was not was 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 enough to not make me feel terrible about what I'd what I'd okay. done. So that makes me feel quite good. From Strong Words magazine, these are the five rules of writing. Good. Now we're going to get onto your rules of writing and. I also have to extend my gratitude to you because although this is uh, this is clearly titled the five rules of writing, you've decided that five is an inadequate number to fully inform potential writers of childhood autobiography of just what lies ahead for them. So you've you've very generously supplied seven. Is that because it's a it's a particularly tricky genre to write in? I very sloppily supplied seven, <laughs> uh, but, uh, and actually part of the thing was that um, I. Um, you know, like you could just like edit edit out the two most rubbish ones. But now you've now you've actually said it, it out loud. Uh, you've you've made it difficult for yourself. Unless you pop up at the end and say, actually, Pete was right. Two of them were a bit well, rubbish. We'll, so um, it, it was it was fine. Well, it's, it's considered a bonus. So um, so let's go. The first one you say, if you can see the whole thing ahead of you, write it before you pitch it. How does this work? Yeah, and that sort of follows on from what I was saying in a way about sort of taking the pressure off, off myself. Well, certainly, um, I'm the worst pitcher in the world. I, I I I pitch ideas, and I see the I see the I feel the confidence drain out of me as I'm pitching the <laughs> idea, and I see, and I just see the uh, the the look of consternation on the faces of the people I'm pitching to, as if to say. What you actually, <laughs> you actually arranged a meeting with me in order, me, a very busy person and a very important person, uh, in order to uh, to sell me this terrible idea. And, um, you know, I think Broken Greek, in terms of doing things properly, I think it's a pretty terrible idea as well, because, it, it, you know, in one sense, it can't decide if it's a music book or if it's a memoir. And, um, and really, it's kind of, 
and the reason it can't decide whether or not it's one or the other is because I couldn't really tell the story, the the memoir bit, without talking about the the music bit because music was such a an absolute total um, overwhelming presence in my life. Music was the engine by which I sort of. Uh, came to understand what was happening to me in the non-musical area of my life so I just could not separate these two things and um, so it was important to keep those two things together I also sort of think that the way we write about music um, you know has been a certain way the kind of the 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 sort of artifice or the appearance of uh, objectivity when people historically have reviewed records uh, for music papers I'm not sure that's sort of so viable anymore because you're not you're not necessarily trying to describe records for people who only have a certain amount of money and want to make sure they make the right decision because because there are streaming services now which allow you to hear records before you buy them so I think music writing isn't really doing can't really do the same job it it, it did before mm-hmm. um and i think one way for music writing to sort of survive or adapt to a, a, a new this this new era is to 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 be a bit more personal and not to be like the impartial voice in the sky telling you exactly sort of how what this re- whether or not you were allowed to like this record right. and so, so i want i wanted so that was another sort of purpose of the book so i wrote the whole thing i wrote the whole thing um because that way i didn't have to to, to pitch it basically okay so when you were pit you when you said pitching it you're pitching it to agents presumably and no i just wondered what it was about your pitch that finally made the penny drop on the other side i wrote a, i wrote a putative chapter um uh which ironically ended up not appearing in the book uh <laughs> because it fell outside of the time frame i decided eventually that the book needed to be in um which is handy because if i write a sequel i've got a chapter in the back <laughs> uh but um and so um i so so i got so i got an agent on the back of uh that chapter and then um but then I, uh, both my agent and I decided that um, we should, uh, that if there was no hurry, really, if I wasn't sort of desperate to get an advance, then uh, I should just sort of write the first maybe seven or eight chapters and then maybe look at getting an advance. But by that time, I sort of decided that I could see the pitfalls ahead because it was obviously going to be a very long book. And there, I had no earthly reason to believe that, um, you know, sort of a relatively unknown author like me could ever have the sway to, to, to have to have a book like this, a memoir that finishes at the age of thirteen and a half, <laughs> and it's five hundred and eighty-two pages long. I mean, who in their right mind would would? So that was the other thing. I thought, well, if I wrote, I think it does need to be this length because I think that kind of immersive level of detail. Um, you know that that's i wanted people to feel have this kind of 360 degree sense that they really were sort of almost experiencing almost in real time as it were um what was uh this this, this kind of the gradual the glacial way in which you sort of grow up and yes. it, it had to be long it had to be long in order to do that but of course it's one thing to pitch that idea but no one's gonna let it. so i thought well rather than explain why it's important that has to happen again that's another good thing about writing it in its entirety then i don't have to explain well that kind of comes on to the the, the second rule because it is uh you know you mentioned it's a long book and it's uh you you you, you, you haven't even made your 14th birthday by the end of it but it's actually a very it's a very uh, easy read you know this isn't a steep mountain it's a it's a a, you know it's a it's a very pleasurable experience to read and so your second rule you say the reader is a guest in your interior world ensure they don't need to lift a finger be the private detective of your past so how did you pull off this trick that the reader feels they don't need to lift a finger um by by pretending to be the reader in a way by sort of putting myself in the reader's place reading what i'd done out loud and you know just having a sense that i always wanted like i wanted the writing to be like have you seen the the the, the video to free, uh, free as a bird the beatles uh the the song that the beatles recorded yeah. around the title of anthology it's a sort of it's from the perspective of 
of a bird just swoop, swooping in to particular kind of scenarios that are described in different Beatles songs. And you sort of, um, or the sense of, uh, of a camera just moving from one room to another in a quite an unhurried way. So you sort of get the sense of everything that's sort of um, happening in the room. And so when I, when I was, especially in the, I thought it was very important to do that in the early part of the book to really absolutely make people be able to see in their mind's eye where, where everything was. So they could be, you know, that kind of child's eye view of the world was, mm. um, you know, they, they had that child's eye view of the world. And, um, and so, um, so it just took my time. I didn't, I, 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 I felt like descriptions that are not always strictly relevant to the narrative uh, needed to be sort of unhurried. And, you know, you do, <clears throat> so the, you had this sense of just, um, there's a bit in the book where I, uh, I sort of describe our next door net. We moved to a house in 1979 where there was very, we had, neighbors that were very british you know there were kind of a real range of very british archetypes and uh and so i really needed to uh make sure that that we, we i get i guess just just read my description really that you really need you knew what those archetypes were so there was a sort of there was a the the, uh, the there was a very kind of uptight um british uh couple probably in their 60s around that time that um that were very um very sort of like i said very uptight emotionally sort of constipated as it were and you know that very classic sort of um, you know that 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 scenario described very well in Ray by Ray Davis in the song Shangri La. This you know the Englishman's home is his castle, and um, and so when I talk about being the private detective of your past, uh, one of the first things I, I I did when I started writing the book is I interviewed people who were able to allow me to be the private detective of my past. So um, I interviewed uh, the, our, our, our next door neighbor on the other side who, with whom we, we stayed in, we'd stayed in touch, a very lovely woman called Joyce, who, who has since passed away sadly. And, um, and she was the mother of uh, the kind of surrogate big sister character that lived next door to me, Jed. And anyway, she was fantastic in describing the kind of eccentricities of this very uptight couple that lived on the other side of us. And she gave me this wonderful detail of, um, of, of, of Dennis. He was called Dennis, the, uh, planting, the, planting tulips in his garden and having a tape measure to make sure that everything, <laughs> all the tulips were equidistant uh, with each other. And uh, and when they came up, they were like sort of soldiers on parade. And that I think that was a phrase Joyce even used, which I sort of half inched for the book. And um, and so all these things I sort of had to I had to do to, to sort of make sure that people really really did get a very sort of vivid sense of this world. You have to interview people. I met um, an old school teacher of mine who, who was my teacher in the second year of infant school and she was fantastic she was um so she gave me lots of details and you could you wouldn't know it's like you wouldn't read the book and think oh he's interviewed that person you know i just sort of described what mm. she told me so what we had, were you shocked to discover about yourself from this uh, teacher that's a good question um i was shocked that she remembered me as vividly as she did and she of course she would have remembered me because i was the weird silent kid that wouldn't speak to anyone uh, I think so. She'd felt quite protective of me, but again, she had she really painted this fantastic picture of what it was like to be a primary school, an infant school teacher in the 1970s before that whole profession was overly regulated. So she talked about kind of, you know, she was a young, she was in her second year of teaching, so she was in her 20s, and she would go down the, she would go to the pub at lunchtime with another teacher, Miss um, Zimnovodsky, uh, who taught in the classroom right next to to our classroom uh, they go and there were there was a hamster that um that, that in that that they had there was like a pet hamster in that class which she would release from its cage and put in her coat pocket and they take the hamster down to the pub at lunchtime and have half a pint of beer each and she'd give the hamster a little bit of her cheese sandwich <laughs> and uh, you know details like that are just kind of heavenly to to anyone writing a book like this because right. it immediately kind of evokes a very different sort of 
you know, a, a time that's so different to the one we have now. Yeah, primary schools were completely different places, weren't they? I remember when I was at primary school, we had, um, there was a guillotine, which was um, just a, a sort of wooden chopping block with a big knife uh, yeah. attached with a hinge, you know, for wow. chopping paper. And yeah. some poor kid managed to take a couple of fingers off. And wow. uh, all that happened was that I think they announced in assembly, if you're using the guillotine, you've got to be a bit more careful with it. And that was, <laughs> that was it. Carry on. It was... I mean, um, it's amazing isn't it you know it's that sort of sl that everything was just dealt with so much more casually and um and so that was amazing and it was really nice to have confirmed um you know things that i thought that i remembered so vividly that i thought i've just kind of embell em unconsciously embellished them as time has gone by so this teacher who I'd remembered as just being like very, very sort of thin in the way that people were in the 70s. I mean, there was a kind of level of thinness that was just <laughs> default in the 70s. And she like I said she had the but she her body was a bit like one of those kind of fruit bars that you have small children, which was just like flat all the way down. <laughs> <laughs> flat all the way down but she had this fantastic um afro um she had this like bubble perm i guess but it was really big like it was a big bubble perm and she had these huge kind of glasses so the combination of her sort of flat kind of body with her flared trousers accentuate high-waisted flared trousers which accentuated it and her curly hair and a big glass just made her look like she'd stepped out of hannah barbera cartoon yes and uh, a, a nylon paisley top of some sort Yes. And I said, and I said, did, you know, I said to Miss Haler, she's called Chris Waters. He's her, she's since got married. She's now in her, she's just retired. She's in her sixties now. I said, did Miss Simnivotsky really look like that? And she just liked, she said, yes, that's exactly what she looked like. <laughs> so that was really pleased, you know, and things like, and again, what, what I mean about be the private detective of your, so yeah. So, you know, is a lot of it is a little bit like detective work and sometimes things fall into place as a result of that quite serendipitously that you just have, would have had no reason to thought that they would fall into place. So there's a story I tell in the book about um, how um, a low, uh, uh, around one morning at school, someone had dumped uh, several boxes of stickers um, from a local filter. They weren't nice stickers, like st stickers that people buy for their children. They were just sort of, they had the logo of this uh, filter, like a car filters, I think, uh, the, uh, with, yeah. uh, they were called Harmo. And there were just hundreds and hundreds of stickers just all around the school. And people people were just sticking them on each other and so forth. And, you know, this, this was emblematic of a time when there was just generally less stuff. Uh, you know, any, if you just found anything that was remotely useful or, or you know, anything that would break the boredom, you would just yes, make it. And... Uh, and so anyway, when I was researching, um, there was rather, a rather sort of dark episode in the history of my school when um, a boy in my year um, um, had uh, killed a, a much younger boy on a, on a piece of sort of wasteland, sort of scrubland, just, uh, about, uh, just very near to where the site of our school was. And, uh, and I had to make sure obviously I, got, I got my facts straight. And so I went to uh, a Birmingham Central Library and got... Uh, you know, they still had all the old newspapers on microfiche. So I was looking through the microfiches and I found the, the 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 local newspaper stories about that. And one and it was one thing, and in his testimony to the uh, police, the boy that had killed this other boy said that they'd gone to this piece of wasteland to look for um, more, more stickers, more of these stickers. So it's just weird to sort of this story that I'd remember because I'd had, I still got an exercise book, which is emblazoned with all of these stickers that we'd found. Mm -hmm. It's weird to think that this boy had gone to this piece of wasteland ostensibly in search of these stickers and got in, into some kind of weird game that had gone wrong, which had resulted in this boy being killed. So oh these things being, these connections being made, you know, again, made you say, oh God, I wasn't imagining that. That's, oh God, blimey, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, and that that kind of leads on to, to your third point because these are obviously the big sort of um, standout moments. But then you also say, if so this is your third rule, you say, if decades later you remember an ostensibly unmemorable event, there's probably a reason for that. What prompted yeah. this rule? Yeah, and I think this is really useful in terms of you know they're often um, as a child 
things just stick just stick with you and you don't really understand why and you know the great thing about being older is that you can sort of go back and kind of take it apart a bit and understand it a little bit better and uh so i really wanted to not deny those kind of ostensibly unmemorable events I just I just felt it was very useful to just keep asking myself why well why do you why do you remember that and and so um, in building up this kind of composite sort of granular picture of of the world as it seems to a child that was very very useful so there was there was there's like a story about um, um, my so my my Abba you know um, obviously became. A huge huge thing in the 70s and my dad <clears throat> who wasn't really paying attention to pop um even he noticed abba and um i remember him having a conversation with me when my mum was in the room and uh i would have been around uh seven i think <clears throat> and um and he told he just asked me because he's an unreconstructed greek cypriot guy uh, talking to his son uh, uh, he, you know, he sort of he asked me who I thought the the sexiest member of ABBA was, and uh, and I remember um, the uh, the thing I remember was the the, the unhappy look on my mum's face as he asked me this, <laughs> and I didn't really know what sexy what I mean I knew that it was a thing that was you know it was kind of a it was almost like I just thought it was another word for who's your who's your favourite, but I, but I knew that typically, I would be expected to find a, a, a you know like a, a beautiful woman, sexy. So in other words, if I said Benny, <laughs> that wouldn't have gone down. Heading so for well. a clip around the ear. <laughs> yeah, so you just think it's a set, and I knew who the nicest person in who I thought was the nicest person in ABBA, and uh, and that was Anietta, you know. So I said, oh, yeah. So I gave, I just remember my mum really like not looking at all, looking a bit sad or just a bit unhappy about. It. So that stayed with me. Of course, you can go back now. I didn't really understand why at the time, but I can sort of go back now, and um, and not only explain that to myself, but to sort of explain why I felt quite protective, far from finding us sort of sexy as such, I felt quite protective of Agneta, and I think that was to do with her generally melancholy kind of bearing. And and later on, especially around the video to the winner takes it all. Well, she just reminded me of my mum. She looked like this. She looked like the, my mum after my mum had just had a row with my dad. That's what Anietta looked like to me uh, in the video to winner takes it all. And again, you sort of these things sort of stay with you. There's a program I describe watching a program uh, called The Big Time which was hosted by Esther Ranson. And it was a very early example of a reality TV show in which uh, people were, people who wanted to, you know, someone who might maybe wanted to be a cordon bleu chef, what uh, would be sort of, you know, they'd sort of, they'd follow them as they attempted to sort of make, crack their way into that world or a professional footballer. And this was the way the pop star Sheena Easton had a, a, one of these programs devoted to her. So they're following her around, her around as she tried to get a record deal. And when she gets a record deal, she meets different stylists, all of whom have opinions about how she should present herself and what kind of music she should be making. And I remember, um, you know, bear in mind that though this is pre-video, like no, at this point, no one I knew had a video recorder. So this is a program mm -hmm. I watched once in my life. And I remembered it so so clearly, and I, and again, you don't really know why, but at the top, but I sort of go back, and I sort of realise that what I remembered was the sort of sense of disappointment that um, <laughs> that this was. It didn't look like it was very much fun trying to be a pop star. In fact, it looked quite demeaning, and um, and it looked like you were just being pushed from pillar to post, uh, criticised in quite cruel terms often. And you know, but you and you're kind of broken before you even sort of have a record out. And I just right. sort of, and this kind of contributed to this, which is a recur, as you know, is a recurring theme in the book, which is this sort of sense that there just seemed to be no version of adulthood that wasn't disappointing compared to childhood. You know, the you're constantly being told about nuclear war or the, the Cold War, or, you know, having no job prospect later on when, you know, the, you know, the unemployment started to rise. There just seemed to be no, no one was really offering you a version of adulthood that was mm. actually 
as 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 good as you know you kind of wanted it to be. So awkward awkward moments, you know, were mem- were memorable. Um, you know, th- th- things where life was not as it seemed to be on the box, which is again another reason why this essentially a story in which nothing much happens. Uh, like um, the first time we tried pot noodle. Um, um, we, we'd seen the adverts and it looked like the most exciting, it looked like space food, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and my brother and I were really excited about kind of getting some pot noodle. And we got sort of like, we brought some back to the house where uh, we sort of basically um, um, uh, kind of um, almost hoodwinked our dad into sort of buying us a pot noodle when we went out to get his Sunday paper. And we sort of, we sort of, prepared it at the same time as this Sunday lunch that my mum had been preparing for ages. And again, I just remember this sort of desultory sort of kind of cultural collision between like the, the wonderful Sunday lunch my mum had been sort of preparing and and our, our, the fact that we were more excited about the pot, sharing a pot noodle than them. Um, and of course, you don't, you know, it's only looking back that you sort of think, okay, that's why I remember it because it was awkward. You remember awkward things. Right. But well, I mean, also, I think, uh, you know, most people remember the absolute crushing disappointment of the first encounter with a pot noodle. But uh, uh, given the given the scale of the um, the advertising behind it and uh, glamour that it seemed to appear to radiate on the television. But you, one of the great things about your book is that it is genuinely funny. It is a really funny read. And uh, so you, you, you your first rule, you say, try and make it funny. And you succeed in that. It's harder for people to object to something if they're laughing. Now it's you know it's a it's a really likable and uh, entertaining story. How did you you know what what f what what did you do to deliberately make it so, or, or did did is that just uh, just how it kind of rolled out? Um, well, I left out a lot of stuff that wasn't funny, <laughs> <laughs> and I just sort of the the stories you naturally err towards telling are the ones where again I I, I really I'm really interested in situations where life just falls short of, of 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 how it's kind of looks on the box as it were and um and so um and you know a lot of the humor i like now kind of revolves around that you know i'm really delighted that i somehow managed to get my kids into seinfeld when they were young because again you know that kind of those moments where things just go slightly wrong. And I think as a child, you know, it happens a lot in life. I think because also because I think one thing that I realized when I was writing the book is actually, I didn't realize how much of the time I spent feeling uh, sort of guilty about the fact that I was turning into something that was different to what my kind of parents thought, you know, I was big I was becoming English, British, I was becoming British. And my parents wanted me to be Greek. And even though they were kind of sort of not really saying that explicitly, it was kind of obvious. So a lot of the funny stuff that happens in the book is really me trying to sort of figure out, trying to shuttle between these, trying to understand uh, British culture uh, as it's presented to me outside the four walls of my house. And, um, and so, um, you know, there are things like, because so, so, let, let me think. So, so for instance, there's, there's, there's a section in the book. So we had these wonderful next door neighbors. I mentioned Joyce earlier on, who's no longer with us. And the girl that lived next door is called Jed, who I'm still friends with. Uh, and she's still four years older than me. And um, she, she, um, and they were very, they were just such a fantastic family to live next door to because they were, they were real kind of, they were very unlike the, the tulips guy who I mentioned earlier on, Dennis. They were a lot more relaxed. They were kind of very post war, more of an arts and craftsy, self improving, very much kind of product of the welfare state, um, cultured, but not not necessarily aspiring to be middle class. They just were what they were. And, uh, you know, a classic thing about you know they had a piano in in their sitting room uh, but they and they also but they also had a very small black and white tv and that seemed to be sort of the the kind of downscaling of the television in com- comparison to the piano told you a lot about them as indeed did the fact that 
they had wooden floors. Now, to my mum, who had come from uh, fr- from Greece and was really wanted to be middle class, that was the whole, you know, that was the big aspiration. She wanted to have net curtains and, you know, matching furniture. Mm-hmm. And it was unthinkable to her that why did they not have carpets? Why did they have, why did they have wooden floors with just the occasional rug on them? And why did they have this saucepan that uh, this pan it was more of a like a large frying pan that they never washed because of course <laughs> of course you know i i understand why people have that you know that thing of having a pan that you never wash because you're it's sort of see you're seasoning seasoning or you don't scrub it too hard you know that kind of so uh and that's um and the wooden floor thing just mystified her because why wouldn't it's like could they not afford a cup you know it was like a decision that they'd made anyway um so I would like I would be I would be I would be intrigued by them as well. And there's a lot of naturally kind of that whole. So I remember one one afternoon, uh, I walked outside the house. I walked to the we lived in a little kind of cul-de-sac. And I walked to the end of the road, and Jed, who which was short for Geraldine, the girl that was four years older than me, was standing there outside the bus stop, the number eleven bus stop, with a with a clipboard and a petition. And I said, "What? What, what are you? Do, what are you doing?" She said, "Oh, ta-. she called me Takis because Takis was the name my parents called me, my Greek name." Mm-hmm. Uh, she said, um, "I'm collecting signatures to save Mosley Bog." And I said, "Mosley what? Mos- it's a bar. It's a, it's a, it's this really beautiful bog in Mosley that's." Um, Mosley was two miles down the road. That's kind of a, a, a habitat for the natural wild. I just thought it was hilarious. She was trying to, to bog to me meant toilet. You know, I'm going to the bog. And the fact that she was just, you know, it's and it seemed to me just a transgressive act to even be standing there accosting strangers, asking for their signatures. It seemed to be like a kind of thing that mad people did. You know. Yes. Well, that, that takes a. Takes it very much onto the next one. You say, remember how inexplicable most of the world is to children. You say, yeah. And this is a very Zen-like observation. You say, imagination is the empty construction site of all the knowledge you will spend the rest of your life building. Well, yeah, so it's a slightly lofty. <laughs> I can't really think of another way to put it. But um, yeah, I mean, again, but and that in a way, that's a the, you're right. That follows on from this try and make it funny thing. So the kind of the what what your imagination uh, does, you know, the the sort of placeholder beliefs that you put in there, uh, which will in time be replaced by facts, are often more kind of interesting or more revealing than the facts that will ultimately replace them. So there's a section, one of the first pop songs I really fell in love with and was very intrigued by was Roxanne by the police. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that, you know, it was really the beginning of the, you know, my, my adoration of Sting, who of course Sting, it's not particularly cool now to say that you adore Sting, but you know, as a sort of, uh, not, as, as a nine going on 10 year old who, um, was looking for sort of you know older brother slash father figure kind of role models who kind of might you know might sort of almost look after me or kind of see me right you know so sting was sting was a very credible <laughs> credible in that role to me you know and so when he released rocks when the police released Roxanne, well, all the bits, things I didn't really understand about it, were I sort of kind of pieced in my piece together myself. So I asked my brother, my brother Aki, who's four years older than me, um, what, um, what, what, why, what was this business about the red light? Why does anyone want to put on the red light? And he said, "Well, that's because she's a she's a prostitute." And I said, "Well, what's what's a pro- what, what's a prostitute?" And you know, so he kind of wearily explained to me what 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 you do when you're a prostitute i didn't understand but there's so much i didn't understand the red light thing why does it have to be why why is why is that a thing you know and uh and of course it was you conflate things. that's the other thing as you do when you're a child you conflate things because you're trying to understand the world so the yorkshire ripper was at large yorkshire ripper peter Sutcliffe was at large and um, Peter Sutcliffe was at large doing the unspeakable things that he did. And, um, and you know, the police investigation, as we know now, er- erroneously, um, and, 
betraying its own institutionalized misogyny, misogyny uh, thought that he he that he he was trying to kill uh, prostitutes. So he was trying to quote unquote punish prostitutes for their sinful behavior. Mm -hmm. That seemed to be the subtext of a lot of the the police investigation. And so I thought, well, police. Uh, so so Sting is well, Sting is in a band called the Police. So it's almost he's like it's a, it's almost like he's a special policeman who go who goes in to sort of save prostitutes and to maybe try and persuade them to do a safer job. That was kind of what. So I I, I adored him, you know, just for that, if 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 nothing else, and um, and then. And then the, the the ensuing releases by his band sort of fed into this perception, so that when he put out mess, by the time he put out message in a bowl, I was a uh, I was I was I had a teacher at school who I really didn't like. He didn't like me. He was very sporty. I wasn't, and uh, and so I used to fantasize about Sting just coming in, like Sting, because I think I'd read that he used to be a teacher. So I love the idea that maybe Sting might be, you know, be like the dreamy supply teacher who would <laughs> come in and give us a music lesson. And, you know, of course. He didn't. I, well, he didn't, but I'd be the one who'd put my hand in my fantasy. I'd be, I'd put my hand up when he asked us who he was, because I knew who he was. And then he'd be like, hey, kid, you're pretty good. You know, you know. <laughs> You, you, had know, a, you know your music <laughs> <laughs> and uh, also an incredibly you know advanced uh, uh, if erroneous subtext to uh, the output of the police at the time um, <laughs> uh, I think most people were just quite happy to, to you know tap their feet weren't they and uh, clap their hands yeah but you know that's the great thing about being a child you will just you know you construct these entire narratives uh and all you have to do in my position is just try and sort of uh remember them or at least not sort of um think that they're stupid uh, you know because that this kind of goes on to my next point really because i don't think anything any any thought that a child has is is a stupid one they're just trying to figure out their place in the world so moving on, uh, we've heard your your uh, Zen-like observation. This next point is more of a manifesto. So I'm just going to read it out. You say, because you couldn't articulate it to yourself at the time, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Your adult vocabulary is there to express emotions you couldn't articulate. Your job, you couldn't articulate at the time. Your job is to accord the passions of children the same respect we accord to the passions of adults. To use memory, your adult vocabulary, to explain those passions on behalf of the child who didn't have the tools to do so. Sorry, again, that sounds a little bit lofty, but um, it, it, it's really what I'm trying to sort of get across there is that um, I think I was thinking about this kind of notion of, you know, people call them guilty pleasures now and, um, and you know, uh, and sort of, this idea that of you know liking things that are critically that are now re re regarded as sort of critically irredeemable and i sort of think that there's there's a reason you know you are as a child you you're at your most honest you know the, before notions of cool come into play before these kind of games that you play with yourself before you're trying to steer yourself in a certain direction to become a certain kind of person there's this just fantastic period early on in life where you you like what you like and um and you might not and that's what i mean by not articulating you might not necessarily be able to articulate it to yourself at the time but the great thing about the position i sort of the job i gave myself was that well i have a memory and if you have a memory of something you can figure out why why you felt that particular feeling and i so with reference to music in particular i thought that was quite important so there's a couple of things that spring to mind a couple of songs that spring to mind that i write about and um mm -hmm. um there's, there's this kind of epiphany i do i sort of describe when i listen to when i hear um uh, a song by the rubettes called sugar baby love which you know people of a certain age will will, will certainly yes. know, know the song and it really is it's not you know uh, Actually, um, uh, a gentleman called Mark Allen, who, um, who he used to edit Smash Hits, you know, and Q, and is just a great, great character in the history of music publishing. And he read an early copy of the book, and he said, 
you need to get a copy of you need to get this to one of the roubettes because no one no one music journalists were not writing about the roubettes at the time because they were so naff they were like a sort of bubblegum sort of conf, musical confection they were so naff. no one was writing about them seriously at the time and in the book i i so i talk about this sort of epiphany i have listening to the roubettes at the age of five with this kind of ascending dramatic kind of intro to sugar baby love. And, you know, and at the time I, I you know, this is right a period in my life where I was really feeling a kind of guilt, a, a really kind of almost an unbearable guilt because I'd stopped talking to people um, and I could see the amount of anguish and embarrassment it was causing my parents, but it was just something that I, I couldn't explain it to myself. I just couldn't like, I just stopped talking it was a sort of control thing i don't i don't know what it was even to this day entirely and listening but listening to sugar baby love listening to that song this kind of complete outpouring of how like anguished sort of self-recrimination well of course i was going to love that because it was a sort of it was it was the outpouring that I was incapable of at that moment in time, but by God, did I sort of feel it. And of course it's this ridiculous song, but no, you know how it's no song is, you know, it, it's as ridiculous or non-ridiculous as you want it to be. And, and again, so I wanted to, and going, and I, you know, that was another song. So uh, that's one song, another song I write about in a sort of similar way is Save Your Kisses for Me by Brotherhood of Man. It's huge fun writing about these songs. Of course, no journalists ever write about these songs. You know, it's like Greil Marcus did not write about Save Your Kisses. <laughs> Nick Kent left it alone. <laughs> so the, so this is a little fresh snowfall for me. It's, it's, it's actually huge fun writing about these songs and writing about the six year, my six-year-old sort of reaction to a song like that. And what I wanted to do was... Again, it's all about kind of riding to the defense of this six-year-old who couldn't express it at the time, and hopefully by proxy other six-year-olds as well. So I wanted to write, I wanted to write, I had it before I even started, I was, I was like, okay, I want to write about Save Your Kisses for Me the same way that dozens and dozens of writers have written about watching Starman, David Bowie do Starman on Top of the Pops for the first time. I want to freight it with with that sense of drama, that sense of life-changing drama, so that when you're reading it on the page, you're thinking, is this a joke? Is this, is it, what's going on? You know, <laughs> you don't quite know if there's going to be a punchline. And I really love, I love those moments. I love, the, I love them in, in films. I love them in music where you're not quite sure whether or not you're, you're supposed to laugh. And, um, and so um, that gave me the chance to do that. So that's okay. really what I mean. And you do an extraordinary job of rehabilitating the Baron Knights. Nobody has ever written with such uh, enthusiasm <laughs> and uh, intense sincerity about the Baron Knights. Yeah, again, and, it, and it's all to do with the fact that, you know, when you're uh, uh, eight years old, as I was when I first heard the, saw the Baron Knights on top of the pops, you know, you're looking for very different things at the age of eight to the things that you're looking for when you're 18. And so when I saw these kind of uh, self-proclaimed kind of court gestures of pop uh, turning up on my television and doing this kind of medley of songs, which were sort of, uh, which were all sort of songs that have been recent hits, hits for other people, but with new humorous lyrics. That would to me that was an act of absolute in, sort of insurrection. It was, I didn't even know that you were allowed to do that. I thought you'd be put in prison if you kind of just made up silly records to other people. So, so you know that you know my brother was just experiencing his first kind of wave of you know um, excitement to punk. But for me, for an eight-year-old child, you know the the Baronites were as as punk as the Sex Pistols were were to my brother. So it's just a matter of getting into that kind of headspace, getting into that headspace that you occupied as a as an eight-year-old, and not writing it off, not dismissing it. So okay, well, this is how I felt. I must have felt like this for a reason. Let's let's slow down and figure out what that reason was. Let's use memory to understand what that because we have an emotional memory we don't have just have an, a memory for events we have a memory for the emotions that we felt so we can just go back there and figure it out hopefully 
Okay. And one uh, final point that you make this uh, is uh, is a don't don't use your book to settle scores. Do you say this because you learnt the hard way, or or how, how did you come uh, across this point? I uh, I I'm I'm very relieved that uh, I didn't try and write this book. 10 or 20 years earlier because I think I might have uh, done that more um, but um, I think um, maybe through the process of having sort of you know raised children myself and um, and I just sort of think that um, there's something about getting older where you know that the, the you know you end up sort of saying you know you, the amount of times i just say i look at something now i look at a situation uh and say to myself there but for the grace of god you, you sort of we're and as children we are you know the, a lot of unpleasant things happened to me i mean not desperately you know this was never supposed to be a misery memoir and, and that's the other reason why it needed to try and hopefully be funny because it would be mortifying to me if people thought i was trying to sort of if i thought that my experiences were comparable to those of malala or something do you know what i mean it's, mm -hmm. it, it's just it, it was it was a confusion i call it a confusion memoir because mostly i was confused but um but some some unpleasant things happened to me i was sort of you know, I, I was bullied at times. I was, um, I was, I, I received a couple of beatings, um, and uh, and um, and um, you know, and I saw, you know, there were sort of things that happened, you know, in, in my family, misunderstandings between my parents and so forth. That I think if I was younger, then I might. I try not to be judgmental about those things uh, because I, I, I sort of couple of brief examples first of there's a there's a there's a there's a there's a moment in the book where you know my my mum is seriously ill and my dad visits her in hospital and there's a sort of and he says a couple of quite insensitive things that uh, insensitive things shall we say when she's lying in her hospital bed and uh it was very important to me I didn't want to miss it out because I thought it was a kind of an important insight into the nature of not just their relationship but the way certainly greek cypriot and a lot of a lot of men in general were at that time but i also didn't want to make make his behavior seem sort of nasty or needlessly cruel so what I, I, moments like that what i really what i realized I, I needed to do was just sort of just put try and put myself in his shoes as much as i could factor into the equation the where he grew up the kind the, the notion you know how men of that generation and that sensibility were told to were were told to deal with their emotions and um and it was important to do it was important to do that because in order to sort of avoid people thinking you know taking sides as it were in 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 that sort of in that moment and again similarly you know uh, we're as kids you know so the later chapters where i sort of fall in with a rough crowd and i don't really come out of it very well it was just really important to just remember that you know we're all sort of you know at that age we're all just figuring we're all a bit scared of adulthood we're all a bit scared of what we're going to become we all want to fit in and uh, as children you often make some pretty you know you, you you make some bad decisions about what you need to be and what you need to do in order to to sort of get by and uh so i really i really spent a lot of time hopefully hopefully making sure that it, it there was no people could perceive no bitterness or score settling or um uh in, in those sections of the book Okay, I mean that—that's very much. I think there's very much uh, something you succeeded at because it does come out as a as a really charming, sort of warm, uh, sort of slightly, you know, very innocent and sort of sort of puzzled innocence at uh, just what right. was going on around you, and it's a it's a fabulous book, and I urge everybody to read it. It's out in paperback in June. Right. Uh, Broken Greek by Pete Perfides. Pete, thank you so much for coming and uh, so much, sharing your the background to your book. It's been hugely enjoyable listening to you. Bless you. Thank you very much indeed. Take care. Bye-bye. My pleasure. From Strong Words magazine, these are the five rules of writing. Mm -hmm.